Good morning to everyone. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. We are entering chapter 14 this morning, but that's not where I want to begin. I want to begin back in the 12th chapter. And so turn there with me, I invite you, and follow along as I read uh, the first two verses together. Again, that's Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect." Key verses in this epistle, they mark a transitional moment as Paul moves from his explanation of the gospel in the first 11 chapters to his application of the gospel in chapters 12 through the middle, more or less, of 15. The tone changes. It's not so much uh, didactic and explanation of the gospel in so much now as he gives a series of commandments exhortations, uh, truths that we are to take to heart, we are to apply, we are to follow. I am aware of a very simple fact. I trust most of us in this room are also aware of this fact. Uh, it's the following, that when we, when we hear, a, hear a series of commandments, uh, when we enter a portion of Scripture where there are there is such an emphasis placed on do, do, do. Uh, I am aware of the fact that um, we are in danger of returning to our default position. What is our default position? We're a bunch of raving legalists. We are. Accept it, embrace it. You are and I am. Uh, you go all the way back to the fall, Adam and Eve, it's there. Legalism rears its ugly head in the garden. And it has plagued humanity ever since. The danger is when we hear command after command, commandment heaped upon commandment, we are in peril of falling back into our old ways. We are in peril of legalism rearing its ugly head yet again. I want to take just a few moments to check it to keep it in place, put it back in the box, so to speak. And I want to do so by giving you two words. Are you ready? First word is this, condition. Have you got it? Second word is this, implication. Condition, implication. Implication, condition. Now let me put the two words in a sentence for you. Here it is. Legalism arises when we view God's commands as conditions for God's grace rather than the implications of God's grace. That's it. That is the way to check legalism. That sentence. Legalism arises when we view God's commands as conditions 
for God's grace, to receive it. Conditions to be fulfilled by us in order that God might look favorably upon us. Rather than the implications, the results of God's grace in a life that is seeking to live out the reality of the gospel. Let me break it down for you even further, take you on a journey, three stops along the way. Here is stop number one. God offers Christ to sinners. I trust you understand that. You've wandered in here this morning. You're not a Christian. I hope and pray you understand this. You hear me very clearly right now at the outset. Almighty God offers the Lord Jesus Christ to you right now. We don't need to fulfill any conditions. We don't need to get our act together before receiving Christ. We don't need to meet a certain standard before receiving Christ. We don't need to be sorry enough. We don't need to be ashamed enough. We don't need to be good enough. We don't need to be holy enough before we can receive Christ. God offers his son right now. You don't believe me? Look at this table. What do you think this table is all about? It is a visible testimony to what the word of God declares, that God offers his son, and his son is to be received. As we take in bread, we take in the cup, we appropriate them physically. This is a visible proclamation of the gospel that in the same manner we are to receive Christ through faith. We are to appropriate him. And God offers him to whosoever will may come. That's the first step along the way. I trust we're clear on it. The second stop, rather, is this. When we receive Christ, we take possession of all the benefits that are found in him. This might seem a little confusing, but it's not that God really offers you forgiveness of sins in the first instance. It's not that God offers you justification. It's not that he offers to adopt you into his family in the first instance. No, 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 no. He offers Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we believe on Christ, we receive him, we become one with him, we take possession of all those benefits that are found in him. To be united to Christ is to be justified. It is to be forgiven. It is to be clothed in his righteousness. To be united to Christ is to be adopted. He's the son of God. Well, I'm now an heir of God, co-heir with Christ, adopted into that family. To be united to Christ is to be reconciled to God because Christ is now my peace. And I know as we celebrated earlier, he is the high priest who has entered through the veil, through the shedding of his blood. And I now have peace with God in Christ Jesus. I know to be united to Christ is to be sanctified. He is holy in God's sight. And I become a saint, Saint Stephen, if you like, in the presence of God, because I'm united, made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. These blessings, please do not divorce them from the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do it. They are offered to us insofar as Christ is offered to us. We become one with Christ through faith. 
And by virtue of that union, everything he has becomes ours. Everything he achieved in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension becomes ours. It is all ours because Christ is ours. The third stop along the way is this. As Christians, we now glorify God who has saved us in Christ by obeying him. Do not shy away from that word obedience. Don't shy away from it. If you are a Christian, I'm assuming most of us are, here is what God says to you right now, okay? From Scripture, my paraphrase of Scripture. Here it is. I didn't choose you because of who you are. Let's just put that away altogether. I chose you by sovereign grace. You did not earn my favor then. Please understand you cannot earn my favor now. I do want you to grow in knowledge, knowledge of me. And I want you to grow in love for me. And I want you to obey me. Please, please, please do not divorce my commands from whom, who I am. My commands are an expression of my love for you. Christ upon the cross flows from the grace of God. God's commands, please understand this, flow from the same source. They are the expressions of a loving, merciful, gracious God. He says to us, in commanding you, I am not depriving you of anything. In commanding you, I am not destroying your joy. On the contrary, I have your joy in view. I have your joy ever before me. Because please understand, my glory and your joy are inseparable. Both meet in obedience. The glory of God and the joy of the Christian come together and merge in obedience. I know what is best for you. And I want what is best for you. Trust me and obey me. Oh, I trust those three stops along the way are very clear in our minds. It is precisely what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Ricky, bring up that slide now, if you please. I hope you please. And there it is. Here's the summary. You've seen this before. Oh, we've been at this almost two years now. The starting point, the first 11 chapters, the mercies of God. The expression, the precise expression Paul uses in verse 1. I appeal to you. I plead with you. I beg you by the mercies of God. Everything I've been saying in the first 11 chapters. The gospel in all of its wonder and beauty. I appeal to you that you now act on it. And what is Paul saying? Simply what I've penned there or rather typed there. Here in the mercies of God, we find the supreme motive for obedience. We obey because of God's mercy. Remember the two words? What were they? Condition, implication. We do not obey in order to meet a condition for God's mercy. We obey, why? 
as an implication of God's mercy. The supreme motive for obedience lies in the mercies of God. And it is manifested how, Paul says in verse 1, in a consecrated body. I now offer myself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is my spiritual worship. It's manifested, secondly, in a renewed mind. I'm now no longer conformed to this world, but I'm being transformed by the renewal of my mind. And what do these two look like in the life of the Christian? Well, that's all Paul is doing from verse 3 of chapter 12 all the way through to the middle of verse chapter 15, he is simply explaining with those two, a consecrated body and a renewed mind look like. Next slide, Ricky. And there it is. It, they affect how we relate to ourselves. Summed up in that expression, sober judgment. They affect how we relate to our fellow believers. For example, here at Grace Community Church, summed up in the expression, Genuine love. They now determine, shape, influence how we relate to our enemies. Active compassion, Paul says there toward the end of chapter 12. Uh, they affect, yes, a consecrated body and a renewed mind. Our interaction with our rulers, how we approach our rulers, the governing authorities, grateful subjection. They now determine how we relate to our neighbors. Fervent love is a pretty good summation of that. They determine how we relate to our own desires. This was last Lord's Day, summed up in those words, proper walking. And lastly and finally, they dictate how we relate to our own opinions. Chapter 14, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 15, verse 13, and we can sum it up in those two words, perfect harmony. Just leave that up there, Ricky. We now all know exactly where we are. We've covered the first six. We've now come to the last. And look at how much time the Apostle Paul spends on this. That's interesting. Let me merge into it uh, with the following statements. I don't know how many there are. Maybe a couple dozen I might have to cut off after a while. This is to set the context. Ready us, prepare us for what's coming then in chapter 14, verse 1 through to chapter 15, verse 13. Here we go. Statement number one. I know Christians who play sports on a Sunday afternoon. And I know Christians who don't because they think it's a violation of the Sabbath. Okay? What's that got to do with anything? Stick with me. I know Christians who play cards and dominoes. And I know Christians who don't because of their association with the occult. Dominoes, you might not have been aware of that, but in Southern Europe, especially Portugal, Christians just do not play with dominoes because of the association with the occult. Third statement. I know Christians who watch football. And I know Christians who don't because they find the cheerleaders to be degrading to women. I know Christians who celebrate Christmas, and I know Christians who don't because of its historical association with pagan festivities. I know Christians who vacation at the beach, and I know Christians who don't because so many people are dressed inappropriately. I know Christians who read Ernest Hemingway, and I know Christians who don't because his books don't reflect the biblical worldview. 
I know Christians who lift weights, and I know Christians who don't because they think it's motivated by vanity. I know Christians who watch I Love Lucy, and I know Christians, yeah, that's a stretch, I know at least one, who doesn't, why? Uh, because it conveys a spirit of feminism in seminal form. I know Christians who study the martial arts, and I know Christians who don't because of their origins in Eastern spirituality. I know Christians who drink beer and wine in moderation, and I know Christians who don't because they believe the devil is in every bottle. I know Christians who own a gun, or in the case of most here, guns, and I know Christians who don't because they can't picture Jesus carrying a gun. I know Christians who worship with songs drawn from a vast array of sources, and I know Christians who only sing the Psalms because it is the church's hymn book. I know Christians who believe all church services should be fully integrated in terms of age, and I know Christians who don't because there are educational goals corresponding to certain stages of spiritual and intellectual development. I know Christians who use the internet, and I know Christians who don't because it's used in morally repugnant ways. I know Christians who hunt deer, and I know Christians who don't because they think it's cruel and therefore a flagrant abuse of God's creation. I know Christians who think babies should be born in a hospital, and I know Christians who think babies should be born at home. I know Christians who have no problem with women wearing pants, makeup, or earrings, and I know Christians who are opposed to such things because of their overt worldliness. I know Christians who allow their kids to dress up in benign costumes and collect candy on Halloween, and I know Christians who don't because of the associations with evil. I'm going to keep going. Just a few more. I know Christians who think there are many ways to educate their children, and I know Christians who think there's only one God-approved and God-ordained way, and we dare not deviate from it. I know Christians who dance, or at least think they can, and I know Christians who are opposed to all dancing. I know Christians who watch movies at the cinema, and I know Christians who are opposed to the cinema because of the garbage that is also shown there. I know Christians who enjoy bacon, let's pause for a moment, <laughs> with everything, and I know Christians who don't because they seek to follow the dietary laws found in the Old Testament. I know Christians who adhere to a certain dress code for Sunday worship, and I know Christians who don't believe such things are necessary. And I could go on and on and on and on. I've got a problem. I've got a few. I'm only sharing one this morning. I've got a problem. Here it is. I know my position on all these things is right. <laughs> you laugh. I'm fully convinced. My position on all these things is right. I'm part of a church with people who are wrong. That's my problem. That's my struggle. What am I going to do? I could make it my mission to convert everyone to my position. I could act upon my convictions without giving a moment's thought to anyone else. Who cares what he thinks or she thinks? I could try to find a church where everyone agrees with me. I could gather my family around me on a Sunday morning at home. I could do that until Allison and I disagree on one of these issues. Then the, she's in the living room and I'm in the family room. And there you go. This is how I could handle these things. Sadly, I'm going to hazard a guess. I think it's a pretty good guess. That's probably how most Christians handle these things or approach these things. I, I need some help because I struggle with this. I know I'm right on all of these things and anything else you could come up with. 
and yet I'm part of a church where everybody else, or at least most people, are wrong. Uh, what am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? I need help. That is exactly what Paul gives us. In Romans chapter 14, verse 1, again, all the way through to chapter 15, verse 13. Ricky's going to bring up another slide. Here it is in a nutshell. Paul is going to give us three remedies, all right? Here's your homework, by the way. You can read that massive section and think through these three remedies on your own. We're going to get into detail as we move on, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But there, basically, in a nutshell, is remedy number one, first 13 verses of chapter 14. Do not judge your brother. Welcome him. That's remedy number one. There's remedy number two. It takes up the rest of chapter 14. Do not destroy your brother, but edify him. We move into the first few verses of chapter 15. We find remedy number three. Do not ignore your brother, but honor him. And then next slide, Ricky. We have an appeal. It's a wonderful appeal. Appeal. It is a heartfelt pastoral appeal from Paul to this church at Rome. You find it in verse 5 through to verse 13. There it is just summed up succinctly for us. Oh, glorify God by pursuing harmony. So there is Paul's help for me as I struggle with this dilemma of how to hold all my convictions, all these things I know I'm right about, and you're surrounded by people who disagree with me. Uh, how am I to process this? How am I to handle this? How am I to address this? He's going to give us remedy one, remedy two, remedy three, and then he's going to make again, as I've said, this great heartfelt appeal. This is where we're going to be for the next five, maybe six Sundays. I think Paul gives so much time and attention to it because it is weighty. It is extremely significant. You probably know it as well as I do. Churches don't split over the doctrine of the Trinity. I've never heard of a church splitting over a doctrine of the Trinity, but I have heard of plenty of churches splitting over many of the issues which I have mentioned from the pulpit this morning. And so this is, this is he's putting, he's bringing again theology. He's bringing unbelievable doctrine, complex doctrine in many places. And he's bringing it now to bear on a very practical issue in the context of the local church. Here's what I want to do today. I want to give you eight principles. Hence the eight blanks in the sermon notes if you're using them. You're wondering when I was going to get there. We are now there. Eight principles. I'm just going to give them to you. One or two sentences by way of explanation. I'll read the relevant verses that pertain to these principles. This is what we're going to eke out, if you like, over the next month and a half. My goal, my prayer for me, okay, for me, is that by the time I arrive at chapter 15, verse 13, and look back, I'm able to state the following. Okay, this is what my goal for me, and by consequence, my goal for us, 
Grace Community Church, that I'm able to say the following eight statements. Number one, I want to be able to say this. I have opinions that offend at least someone in this church. I have opinions that offend at least someone, if not a whole lot of people in this church. That's my goal. A principle I want us to be able to embrace. You look at the very first verse of chapter 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. It is a biblical word. It is a biblical concept. There is, therefore, such things as opinions. We will define exactly what Paul means next Lord's Day. For us, how it applies to us, I want us to think of these opinions in the following manner. These are matters of conscience, matters of conscience, to which the Bible does not speak directly or definitively. All right? That's what I'm referring to at this juncture. We're going to build on that a little next Lord's Day. But for now, this will suffice. Matters of conscience. This is what I mean by that word opinion. To which the Bible does not speak directly or definitively. Paul's point is this, that when it comes to such matters, the most important thing is not winning an argument. The most important thing is not defending a position. The most important thing is not enforcing uniformity. How do I know that? Paul says it in the very first verse. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That is illuminating. When it comes to these opinions, we will define them as we move on, Sunday by Sunday. But we must grasp this at the outset. When it comes to these opinions, the most important thing, as far as Paul is concerned, is maintaining unity. Here's the second thing I want to be able to say a month and a half from now. I accept that people are in different stages of spiritual growth. I accept that. And I celebrate it. Where do I get that from? The word Paul uses again in verse 1, as for the one who is weak. He's going to throw out a different word. For example, in chapter 15, verse 1, we who are strong. So as far as Paul is concerned, there are weak Christians and there are strong Christians. Uh, what is the difference in this context? It is their understanding of the Old Testament ceremonial law. It is their understanding of scripture. And so I want to be able to embrace six weeks from now, this fact that people in the context of a local church are in different stages of spiritual growth depending upon their understanding of Scripture. And, and coupled with this, I accept this fact. This difference in terms of spiritual growth, uh, this difference in terms of understanding of Scripture is not a reflection of how much people love the Lord. It is not a reflection on how much people love the Lord. These weak Christians love Christ as much as the strong Christians. And the strong Christians love the Lord Jesus just as much as the weak Christians. Different stages of growth, maturity, yes, contingent upon our understanding and application of Scripture. But these differences are not a portrayal. They are meaningless 
when it comes to the individual's love for the Lord. Third thing I want to be able to say, I welcome my brothers and sisters as they stand in Christ. I welcome my brothers and sisters as they stand in Christ. Where do I get that? Lots of places. Two will do for the moment. Again, verse one, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Verse three, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. And so I want to be able to say this. I welcome my brothers and sisters as they stand in Christ. James Montgomery Boyce penned the following. Oh, Christ is served. Christ is honored when we understand that we are accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ alone and are therefore able joyfully to accept and love all others for whom Jesus died. Let me build on that just a little, then we'll move on. All Christians, this is what I want to get, and I want to get it good. All Christians, no matter their opinion are fully and equally loved and welcomed by their Father. I don't make my acceptance of Christians contingent on how they score on my list of opinions. 100%, I welcome you. 80%, I welcome you, but I'll be watching. 60%, well, all I can do is pray for you. 40%, I'm not even sure you're saved. No. All Christians, no matter their opinions, remember what I mean by opinions, matters of conscience to which the Bible doesn't speak directly or definitively, no matter their opinions, they are fully and equally loved and welcomed by their Father. Here's the fourth thing I pray I can say. I am convinced in my own mind. I am convinced in my own mind. You would be mistaking me if you were to conclude from what I am saying right now that these opinions don't matter. They do matter. You would be mishearing me if you were to conclude from what I am saying that these things are completely insignificant, so who cares? No, no, no. You look at what Paul says there in the fifth verse. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, we are supposed to study these things. We are supposed to look at what Scripture says. We are supposed to work through it, the implications, the significance, the repercussions, and we are to arrive at convictions. We're to ask basic questions as we wrestle with these things. Am I understanding the Bible correctly? Have I even considered what the Bible says about this, or at least what it hints at? Am I defining godliness Biblically, or have I simply associated it with a list of externals, conformity? Am I evaluating my culture biblically, or do I simply drink from it like a fire hydrant pouring and gushing into my mouth? 
When I'm faced with these opinions, matters of conscience, to which the Bible doesn't speak directly or definitively, am I asking the important questions, right, in order to be convinced in my own mind? For example, can I do this for God's glory? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Here's another good question. Is what I'm contemplating, as I, as I try to formulate this opinion, where I stand on this thing, and I'm not getting much clarity from Scripture, well, here's a great question. Is, is this worthy of someone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Here's another question I ask. Does it edify 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. One other question I ask is this, does it enslave me? All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. 1 Corinthians 6, 12. Here's the question, and I fail at this. I do. I don't want to give you the false impression that this is something just running through my mind all the time, but it is something I pray by God's grace, God's help. I, I do try to ask myself every so often at least, as I wrestle with these things and uh, try to determine, well, where do I stand on I never even thought of that. Well, where do, I, where do I stand on this? Here's a basic question I try to ask myself. Uh, if I were to do this, um, if I were to participate in that, here's the question. Afterwards, can I thank God for it? My answer is no. Guess what? Yes, it's my opinion, but I now know what to do because I'm now convinced in my own conscience and I must act according to my conscience before my Lord and Savior. Is this something I can thank God for afterwards? That's a very helpful question. That's a great question. But the point I want us to get at the end is I want us to be able to say, I am convinced in my own mind. I have actually thought these things through. We may not arrive at all the same places. We won't arrive at the same places. But at least I've done my homework, right? At least I've tried to bring my mind and my heart in conformity to God's word. At least I've understood in the language Paul gives us there back in chapter 12, verse 2, that we might discern what is the will of God, that I might discern what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. And I'm now convinced, and that's how I'm going to live. Here's the fifth thing I want us to be able to say. I am committed to pursuing what makes for peace and edification. Still in chapter 14, look at verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. The two are inseparable. Peace, edification. Edification, mutual upbuilding, in the context of a church, is absolutely impossible without peace. Let me just think. Think of four or five workmen trying to put up a wall. And imagine they dislike each other and are going at each other and arguing over this, that, or the next thing. That wall isn't going up. You get the idea? It's no different in the context of a local church. There must be peace for there to be growth. 
There must be peace for there to be edification. Or that expression, I really like the expression Paul uses there. Again, the end of verse 19, mutual, mutual upbuilding, whereby one is building up another, another building up, another, another building up this one. And as they build up one another, they contribute to the growth of the whole. And so I want peace. So how will what I say and do affect others and potentially disrupt peace? That's a great question. What is in the best interest of others before I just plow ahead and say, well, this is what I'm going to do? No, what, what, what is in the best interest of others? What is in the best interest of the church? Will this create unnecessary problems? Because I want peace. And building on that peace, I want growth. Will my opinions or the way I live, what I do, in some way adversely affect someone else's spiritual walk? Those are questions I want to wrestle with. Those are questions I want to take seriously because I am committed to pursuing, pursuing, hunting after what makes for peace and edification. Sixth thing I want to be able to say, I embrace silence as one of the best ways to make peace. I embrace silence as one of the best ways to make peace. Look at what Paul says, verse 22, chapter 14, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Uh, what is he saying? We will unpack it when we get there a few weeks from now. For, for now, for, understand this. There are times when I must keep my opinions between God and me, if I recognize something is disputable, if I recognize something that falls into this category, again, please understand, we are not talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. We're not speaking of the authority of Scripture. We're not speaking of Christ's divinity and humanity, fully God, fully man, and one person. We're not speaking of the major tenets of the gospel. We're not speaking of the golden chain of salvation. We're not speaking of sanctification. We're not dealing with doctrinal theological issues. We're into the realm of opinions. I've defined what we mean by that. Matters of conscience to which the Bible does not speak directly or definitively. There are times when I must keep my opinions between God and me. If I recognize some of these things, something like this as disputable, then I need to be convinced of my opinion. And there are many times when I must simply keep it to myself, recognizing that embracing silence is one of the best ways to make peace. Seventh statement I want to be able to make. I am chiefly concerned about pleasing others. That's what drives me. There's my impetus. I am chiefly concerned about pleasing others. We're into chapter 15 now. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Reminiscent of what we saw back in verse 19. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And so I'm going to be asking myself the following. Do I love Christ enough to imitate him? 
Do I love Christ enough to imitate him by thinking of others ahead of myself? Am I going to love Christ enough to not consider, hey, in this situation, what pleases me? What do I want to do? What do I think is in my best interest? But in this situation, what will please my neighbor for his good to build him up? In other words, what impact, what I'm contemplating doing or engaging in, what impact will this have on others? Who might be offended by this? Who might stumble as a result of this? Will this create any dissension, division, confusion? The law of unintended consequences. Oh, I wish we stopped and pondered that one once in a while. The law of unintended consequences. What will be the repercussions, the waves? If I do this, don't do that, engage in this, don't engage in that. Oh, I am chiefly concerned about pleasing others. Why? For their good in order to build them up. And now here's the eighth and final statement I want to be able to make. I know I've moved quickly through these, but I trust you understand my goal. We're going to go right back, start in chapter 14, verse 1 next Sunday. We're going to take bite-sized chunks of this great text for the next month and a half. We will revisit all of these because I know they raise questions and complexities and problems and issues. But here's the eighth and final for now. No, I just want to plant these seeds. By the time it's all said and done, here's what I want to be able to say. I desire, I desire to see God glorified in the midst of his people. Where do I get that from? We're into the 15th chapter. Look at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice, understand it, one voice, there is a corporate collective significance here to the verse, isn't there? I think he is speaking of the context of corporate worship, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, you know our mission statement here at Grace Community Church. Our mission statement, yes, we exist to equip the saints, God's people, to do what? To delight in his glory and declare that glory to the nations. We had a wonderful Sunday school hour this morning, hearing of Guatemala and China, tears brought to my eyes as I heard of this young man, Jonathan, baptized, now with the Lord, singing before the throne. I mean, tremendous to think of what God is doing among the nations. And how that fits into our mission statement here at Grace Community Church is obvious to all. Our problem isn't with the obvious. Our problem at times with the not so obvious. I would submit to you that living in perfect harmony is as chief a means by which we delight in God's glory and declare that glory to the nations as is joining a team and going to Guatemala. How dare I say such a thing? Well, Paul has just said it. There is a goal in view 
that as a body of believers come together, so different, so varied, different backgrounds, different perspectives, and these opinions will arise, and please embrace this, they will never, ever go away. There will always be issues such as these. Paul's chief concern is that a local church will be able to work through them, living again, verse 14, in such harmony with one another in accord as Christ Jesus has set forth a beautiful example that together as we worship, as we delight in God's glory, as we declare God's glory, we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to be able to say that mid-March or whenever we wrap up this section, that I desire to see God glorified in the midst of his people. Turn with me back to chapter 12. And I pray we're able to build the bridge. We're able to connect the dots. Everything Paul has been saying flows from these first two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What are the two words? Condition, implication. We do not obey as a condition for God's grace. We obey as an implication of God's grace, God's mercies. Therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our Father, enthroned in glory above, we join with one voice in worshiping you, in declaring that you are incomparable. There is no one in heaven like you. There is no one on earth below that even begins to compare with you. The greatest man, the greatest woman, the greatest angel are drops in the ocean in comparison to your glory, your majesty. And so we worship. We praise you for your power for your wisdom, for your goodness. As each of these is wonderfully put on display in creation, even more we praise you for your goodness, your wisdom, your power, as these are put on display in the plan of redemption. You have shown forth your power in saving us, sinners dead in our trespasses and sins. You have shown forth your wisdom in sending forth your Son, the God-man, who is able to redeem us, freeing us from our sins. And you have shown forth your goodness in being so merciful to those who were dead in their sins, rebels at heart. And so we do praise you for your glorious grace. We ask you that you would incline our hearts heavenward, you would incline our hearts and minds to your word, that as your children those who love you, those who have tasted of your love, that our heartfelt desire might now be to walk in a manner worthy of our calling in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.